So there's a ton here, right? <laughs> 42 verses, uh, a number of subjects that we could talk about. Um, and I, I will tell you, just in my study this week, it, it's the one of the most um, it's been one of the most challenging and difficult passages to to come away with a an outline that makes sense and get gets us to the point that I think is really in the passage. And so I titled the sermon this morning, uh, Fear's Greatest Comfort, because the sermon starts out and the passage starts out with this fear that David has. And it moves from fear to a faithful relationship. And then um, and then there's a, sort of a turn in the story, as I see it, and we are confronted with a very difficult decision that Jonathan has to make in terms of who it is that he's going to follow. And so that final point will be the following that we're all called to. And that's how we're going to kind of look at it. Um, so let's talk about fear, because that's, that's where the story really begins, is with this fear that David has. And the first point that I want us to talk about is, uh, the fear that we all feel. Um, I would dare say that every one of us in the room this morning has something that we fear. Um, I went out and I, I googled this idea. Certainly, there's you know got to be something out there. There's a lot, actually, on fear. And so we're going to talk about the top ten fears first, okay? And you can uh, just identify with some of these. Go ahead, slide. So, mesophobia. Anybody know what this one is? I didn't either. It is the fear of germs and dirt. Okay. Um, now, show of hands. Anybody have this one? <laughs> Some of you do, right? So you live with that bottle of Purell next to you, and you're constantly cleansing. Uh, all right, next one. All right. So I'm going to take you all back. We did a sermon. We talked about the Agora. Do you all remember the Agora? That's the marketplace. Okay, so Agora is Greek for marketplace. I don't have any idea how this gets in there, but go ahead. It's the fear of being alone in a place where escape is difficult. So something maybe akin to claustrophobia, which is small spaces, except this is just a fear of being caught somewhere and not being able to get out. And so I'll tell you, I knew a guy, his name was uh, Jim Sands. He was, a, he was actually an Army infantryman in Vietnam. And after Vietnam, he became a chaplain. He got out of the Army, went to school, became a chaplain. But Jim loved the outdoors. He actually is the individual who started the outdoor recreation program that the Air Force now calls, uh, I don't remember, but they have it now, uh, the, the Outdoor Wilderness Program or something. Jim actually started that program. And um, and he did it by taking airmen on backpacking trips and that sort of thing. But every time I would sit down to talk with Jim about backpacking in Idaho, he would always tell me, he'd say, this is a great place if you can get up there because you can get your back to the canyon and you can escape out if you need to make a quick getaway. And I always, and I always thought it was odd. And then I realized it was his PTSD speaking, right? He was always looking for the way out. He had to have an escape route. Jim had agoraphobia, I'm guessing. Next one. Social phobia. 
I don't, all the other ones get fancy names. This one's just the social phobia. You can, you can advance it, and it's the fear of being in social situations. Um, some of you have this, and um, I, I've known a number of people that, that, that deal with this. Next one. I'm not even going to try. Anybody know what this one is? It's the fear of getting injections. How many of y'all have this one? Yeah. So what they do these days is they give you Ativan so that you can get to the doctor's office in one piece to get the shot that you need. When I was a kid, I didn't get any drugs. All right. Next. Anybody know what this one is? My son back in the corner deals with this one. It's the fear of thunder and lightning. Astrophobia. And his comes from the fact that we went through an F4 tornado in Yazoo City. So anytime there's thunder and lightning, Christopher, you'll typically find like the dog, you know, up under the table in the living room. That's Christopher. Next. Cynophobia. Anybody? Fear of dogs. Anybody have this one? Interesting. Nobody has this one. This is the number five listed phobia in the world. And typically they say it comes from the fact that you had a poor interaction with a dog when you were young. Next one. Now we get to some of the ones that you all know about. Fear of high flying. This one's mine, right? Yes. That's not comforting that the Delta pilot just raised his hand, okay? (laughs) Next slide. Acrophobia. Fear of heights. The Acropolis sits up on a high spot, okay? Fear of heights. Next one. Anybody know what this one is? Fear of snakes. And everybody in the room raised their hand. Now here, don't advance yet. Does anybody know what the last one is? My wife does. Fear of spiders. All right. Those are the, those are the list. That's the list. If you go out and you Google it, and I looked through, I scrolled and scrolled and scrolled, that's the list you get. Right? And it's pretty standard. It's like those are the common ones that everybody seems to hold on to. Um, I think it's interesting that the fear of dying or the fear of death is not on the list. Because i I got to believe that one ranks somewhere up near the top in our hearts and minds. Um, the fear of illness. Um, lots of Lots of people, I've known lots of people, and I identify with them because I have had that fear myself, the fear of being sick. Um, and, and if you've ever struggled with that, it's the weirdest thing, right? Because you fear being sick, but you fear going to the doctor to find out that you're sick worse. Does that make sense? It makes absolutely no sense. It's completely illogical. Um, and most of these are. But some of them aren't. And the fear of dying is is very real. The passage uh, that's before us, has David gripped with fear. He's gripped with fear because of Saul's pursuit of him. And so we've already seen that in these last couple of chapters. 
David fears what Saul can do to him and wants to do to him, which is kill him. Okay, so David knows Saul wants to kill him, and that gives rise to the entire story. Um, that's that is the reason that we're here, and um, and it, it really kind of pervades the the passage at the beginning, verses one, two, and three. We see uh, we see David. Um, mentioning this fear, right? So in, in the first verse, he's trying to understand, what is it that I've done? Why is your father pursuing me? Um, verse 2, Jonathan is Jonathan at this point is uh, so, somewhat naive. Um, he, he, you are not going to die. See, Jonathan addresses the issue. He knows exactly what it is that David is saying. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. Then in verse 3, David took an oath and he said, Your father knows very well I found favor in your eyes. Um, Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only what? One step between me and death. Okay? That is the driving fear right now in David's heart is this fear of dying. But let's just talk about fear. General fear, right? Fear is all over the Bible. Um, and it's, it's talked about a lot, it's expressed a lot, and it's confronted a lot. Where does it begin? Well, it begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. That's where the idea of fear is first introduced. And it happens to be the the part of the story where Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit, they've fallen in sin, they've gone into hiding, and God comes and He is looking for them. And so He asks Adam, why were you hiding? What's going on? And what does Adam say? He says, I hid from you because I was afraid. Because I feared you. Because now the relationship between Adam and God is broken and there is a, there is a palpable fear between those individuals, between God and, and Adam, between Adam and God. And, and so that, that builds. So now, now we have, we have the reason why, right? Fear is introduced into the, into the equation, into, into life because of our sin, because of our separation from God. So now we don't see the world correctly, or, as we'll talk about it in a minute, it's a little bit odd, right? Actually, we do kind of see the world correctly. We do understand that things harm us and can hurt us. So in some ways, we're perceiving the world correctly. We understand that there's, that there's a problem. We understand that, that we can, in fact, be harmed, that we can die, that we do die, that we will die. Okay? And so we fear... All of these things, because think about the things, think about these. What are they? In every single case, it's something that is going to do you great harm, right? So you fear the snake because you know the snake can bite you, and if the snake bites you, you're going to get really sick, and if you get really sick, you might possibly die, all right? Or if you're flying in an airplane, which is completely unnatural, God did not make us to do this, okay? then you're constantly feeling the vibration in the plane and you're thinking to yourself, 
The pilot was up all night drinking, I just know it, and this plane's going down any minute, okay? And if a plane goes down, my chances of survival are zero, near zero. Um, you see, so we, in some senses, we're perceiving things correctly. We're perceiving the world correctly. The world is a dangerous place for us because of the fall, we're put in a very precarious position. And the problem is that God has given us greater promises. There's more to the story than just the natural world in which you and I exist. So let's look at just a couple, right? So we have the incident, one of the most um, you know, well-known incidents is, is the 12 spies that go into the promised land. And so they're sent in while they're, while they've been wandering in the desert. Um, they're sent in to go and to check out the land. And so they go and they look and it's an amazing land, but it's also a terrifying land because the giants live there, right? These big guys. And so the spies all come out except for two of them and they have their, the, the tale is of Whoa. Um, in fact, they said, uh, you know, they, they had this great fear of the, of the enemy in the land, and that fear trumped their trust in the fact that the Lord had told them the land was theirs. Um, they said that when they, when they look at the strong and powerful men living in the land, they feel like grasshoppers. That's the way they described their fear of what it was that they saw. And of course, we know, we know what happened because of that fear, right? Because of their fear, because they didn't trust the promise of God, the reality of what He was saying to them, they wandered in the desert and an entire generation passed away. And Joshua 1, as they prepared finally to go over and to take the land, but perhaps knowing the fear that had already been expressed in the first attempt to do this, God comes and he tells them very explicitly, don't be afraid. Because, why? I will be with you. And I'll go before you. And I have given the hand, the land to you and I will deliver it to you. So God, in, in that instance, what he does is he directly counters the inclinations of their heart. They want to fear. They do fear. God comes to them and he says, look, here is the reality. The reality is I've given to you the land. And so that involves, you know, trusting the word of the Lord. That involves looking at the world, knowing there are giants in the land, looking at the promise of God and going, I'm going to go here as opposed to my fear. And that's the real challenge. You see, David's fears, our fears, everyone's fears are as a result of the fall. The challenges for us to, um, to fear in the right way, to fear where we should fear. Jesus says, don't fear the one that can hurt the body. Okay? Don't fear that thing which can harm you physically. Fear the one who can both crush your soul as well as your body. Okay? What is he saying? Fear the Lord. Fear God. Begin there. That will transform the way in which you see the world. It, it will help eliminate, perhaps, 
some of these fears. Take some of those fears away. Um, and that's the challenge for us. The challenge is we know what's out there. We know there are things that can harm us. But to learn to trust in the Lord, and we'll, we'll talk about why that trust is possible and how that trust is possible and what that trust looks like here in the next point. And the second point is this, the faithfulness that we all long for. So <clears throat> David has this great fear that's welled up in his heart. It's a fear that's driving his decisions. He and Jonathan have a very special relationship. And so a big chunk of the passage is this relationship between Jonathan and David. And this is the point where, as a pastor, the easiest route for me would, would be to come and say, hey, develop great friendships. They're good for you in life. Is that true? Absolutely. Is that necessarily the point of the passage? I don't think so. Um, the relationship, though, does bear on, um, on the overall passage. It bears on David's life. It bears on Jonathan's life. And it has tremendous ramifications for what's going to happen in the future. Um, but that isn't necessarily the focus. It's the way they enter into the relationship. And it's the type of relationship that it is. Um, you see... David, David is looking for safety. He's looking for security. Where does he find it? He finds it in a relationship with Jonathan, of all places, the king's son. And so it's not just an average friendship. If you go back, if you turn back to chapter 18, I want to I just refresh you, because in chapter 18 we read this, verse 1, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Remember? And then Jonathan takes off his robe that he was wearing, and he gave it to David along with his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. And what that was was... It was symbolic of Jonathan recognizing God's hand on David and who he was. But there's a special relationship. It says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. How many of y'all have made a covenant in a, in a friend relationship? How many of you made a covenant in a marriage relationship? Ah, okay. So take the idea of your covenant, and, and what, do you, what did you say in, your, in the covenant that you made in your relationship with a, with a spouse? You said, I promise to love you and all of the terrible things of life, essentially, is what you say. Right? The good times and the bad times, I will be here for you. Okay? And you said that probably... Well, you had to say it before at least one witness, but if you had a wedding, you, that's the reason you all get an invitation to a wedding, because you come and you bear witness to the covenant-making parties, okay? And so it happens in the context of worship, that's the way we do it in the, in the Presbyterian church, because it's a covenant you're making before God and before witnesses who just happen to be the body of Christ, and if you go wayward, they're going to come alongside you. That's the, that's the way it's supposed to work, okay? In this relationship, Jonathan and David are making a covenant. So that kind of covenant you've made with a spouse, Jonathan and David are making it with each other. 
And that's what makes us really different. It's a, it's a relationship built on the foundation of a covenant made before God as their witness. And so there's multiple times in the passage, if, if you were listening, where they ask, where, where they call upon God as their witness. And, and so we first see it in verse 8. In verse 8, As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you, verse 8, before the Lord. This is David. So David's saying, look, I'm going to call, I'm calling in the relationship here, okay? I, I'm calling you on your covenant promise to me, and I'm doing it before the Lord because you made a covenant with me, Jonathan. Now, please do what you said you were going to do. If I'm guilty, kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Then we move to verse 14, Jonathan speaking. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. That's really key, okay? Show me, here's what Jonathan's saying to David. Jonathan's saying to David, David, show me the loving kindness that God shows you. Wow. Okay? That, it's a very technical word. The word is hesed in in the Hebrew. It's used scads of times to talk about the covenant love of God, the pursuing, unfailing, undying covenant love of God for his people. And Jonathan is saying to David, please have that kind of kindness. Show me that unfailing has said that kindness of the Lord to me as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So, what's he saying? David, when you get free from this situation and you're big and powerful and all of your enemies have been vanquished, remember the covenant. Remember our relationship before the Lord and keep showing me and my family the loving kindness that God shows you. Does this sound like a normal friendship? It sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? It sounds like it's an extra level. It's It's a step above. It's something incredibly special, not something you encounter every day. And then the covenant is made, um, it, it's actually reaffirmed. Verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Verse 23. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember. Yahweh, the Lord, is witness between you and me forever. And then finally, at the very end, you see how it's gone from the beginning to the end. It's, it's, it's all the way through the passage is this covenant relationship between Jonathan and David. And in verse 42, at the very end, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord by saying, the Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left and Jonathan went back to town. This is the relationship 
that David needed to get through the situation with Saul. This is the relationship, if you will, that was the solution, the cure, at this point for David's fear of dying. Let's let's illustrate and apply it. At the very end, Jonathan says to David, go in peace. Now think about that. The full weight of Saul is bearing down on David in David's life. And Jonathan is sending David away. And in the moment of sending David away, he looks at David and he says, go in peace. How can he possibly say that and mean it? And I think he can say that and he can mean it because at that moment, there is peace between he, between Jonathan and David. And, and that relationship at that moment was the most pivotal thing in his life. They were on the right track. They had the right info. They, they knew the situation. And so he was telling him, look, I am going to do my part. You are going to do your part. The relationship is whole and it is enough to get us through this situation. Go in peace. And David did. The text tells us that David left. But this is, this is just merely, this is like a one-time occurrence of a relationship that's talked about all throughout the Bible. And that relationship is God's relationship with us. David's relationship with Jonathan is just a microcosm. It's a small picture of God's covenant relationship with his people. The fact that they could love each other, the fact that, that, that they were willing to call on the, you know, each other to be in this, you know, uh, uh, to show this um, unfailing kindness and, and pursuing love for each other. That's the same sort of language that's used in God's covenant-making relationship with us. When God pursues you, when he has you, the Bible tells us he will not let you go. And he will pursue you all the way to the end because he loves you. It's described this way. He loves you because he loves you. Right? Because he set his heart on you. Because you are the apple of his eye. And so he's going to pursue you all the way to the end because he loves you that much. And he won't let you go and he won't cut you off. That's the way God's covenant relationship is described with us. And Jonathan and David are just a piece of it. And so that's that's really the piece of the puzzle for us. What do we need in order to counter the fears that we have in life? And what we need is we need to know the covenant love of God. right? Because as He loves you, as He receives you, as He accepts you, as He promises you things like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay? And, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you will be with me in glory. And you will reign with me. I mean, all of these promises that God gives to us, those are all part of the covenant relationship that God has with us. 
It's how, it's how we can lay down our head at night, as it were, and go to sleep. And, and if the Lord takes us, He takes us. Now look, the challenge there is, I don't... Here's what I would just say. How do you get there? You get there through the process of, of retraining your heart and mind. Exactly the way you learn not to fear spiders or not to fear flying. Okay, you go to a counselor, and what does the counselor do? Well, if you're Bob Newhart, he looks at you and says, stop it. But, but that's not typically how it happens. Typically how it happens is you retrain your mind to think about the situation in a more logical, correct way. That's typically what happens. And they do it over and over and over and over, and someone has to tell you, and you have to go through, you know, you go through hours of counseling, and you do this. Well, how do we overcome fear in the Christian life? And in life in general, we retrain our heart and mind according to the truth of God's Word. According to His unfailing love, right? We learn to trust that. We learn to look to that. We learn to run to that. We learn to feed our souls on that. And as we do that, we transform our, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's the process of sanctification. And I, and I can only tell you this, it's not going to be complete in this life. And you'll probably carry fears all the way to the grave. And that's okay. Because the covenant-loving, covenant-making God that we have is going to love you all the way to the end and bring you all the way home. Let's close with this. And this is where we turn a little bit. And it's the following that we are called to. So, the relationship that Jonathan and David have entered into require that uh, require that Jonathan's relationship with Saul changes and becomes secondary. And so, if you think about it this way, okay, we all have fears. Once we experience the relationship with our covenant loving God, okay, what follows that is is that our hearts are transformed and we follow him in a different way okay we separate ourselves from from aspects of life and living that that um, don't honor god and we pursue that relationship that does and so in this instance here is jonathan he's now in a he's in think about it there's so much in the passage but he's in a relationship with the king who will be okay and jonathan sees that he knows that his father's kingdom is dying away and that he is not going to be the next king. He knows that. He also knows that David's, David is, right? And the Spirit has knit them together and he knows that David will be the next king. Even though David is still honoring Jonathan as if he is going to be. That's why he bows down three times before him. Okay? But in the relationship, this, as, as it develops, Jonathan has now attached himself to the, to the real king, as it were, King David, who is on the rise. That's where he is now connected, okay? And, and as he is connected to that king, what does it mean about the relationship with his father, with the outgoing king who's on the down? It means that that relationship completely and totally is altered and it changes, one author speculated that Jesus may have had exactly this story in mind when he said, when he said those words, 
unless you hate your father and mother, sister and brother, and come follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Because think about what's going on in this relationship. This is a blood relationship. Jonathan is Saul's son. He's the, he is the heir to the throne. And, and he has gone out of, his, out of his way to help David because he's connected to David in this special relationship. And you see, that special relationship that he has with the new king is altering his relationship with Saul, his father. And he is on the outs, as you saw near the end of the passage, right? When Saul finds out, and Saul does understand that Jonathan is lying to him because Jonathan slips up and he actually uses the same word in the text. The, the text is escape. He has escaped to Bethlehem. There's a, it's, a, it's almost a Freudian slip by Jonathan which gives part of it away. Now it's not so much that he's going down for the sacrifices it is he's getting out of Dodge. And when Saul hears that, that's when he enraged, throws his spirit at his son, Jonathan and nearly kills him. And Jonathan stands up. He's enraged that his father is acting this way, doing this way. And in that moment, he turns his face towards David and he moves away from Saul. Now, that is the following that we're all called to. Because when you are attached to the king, the king of kings, He wants you, all of you, all of us, right? And what that requires is, that requires us sometimes to turn away from some things that previously may have been good for us or parts of our lives. And we're we're asked to leave those behind in order to come and to follow Christ. And, And sometimes it's by comparison, right? Sometimes it's by actually having to give something up. He, he calls us to Himself. And when He calls us to Himself, He calls us to leave things behind that previously we thought of as good and helpful to us. In this instance, Jonathan, as he connects to the new king, has to leave the relationship with his father behind in order to go and be alongside David's side. And so the big picture for us there is as we come and we're in this relationship with God, He calls us in a different in a different path. He calls us to a different following. He calls us to a different calling. And, and that means we leave old things behind because all things are becoming new in our lives. And that's hard and that's challenging, but that's what He calls us to. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful this morning for the story of Jonathan and David. Father, I just I pray that as we think on it, we will think upon your goodness. We'll know of your love, your grace, and your mercy. We'll know of the way in which you've pursued us. And Father, that we would have sweet fellowship with you the way that David and Jonathan had sweet fellowship with each other. And then, Father, as we struggle, as we battle in our own lives to leave things that are um, of the old way behind, I pray that you would give us grace to do that and mercy when we struggle in doing it. We pray it all in Christ's name.